and welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, and podcaster. Today, I am really excited to welcome Sarah Clarkson to Old Books with Grace. Sarah Clarkson is a writer who loves to explore the intersection of story, suffering, and beauty. She studied theology at Oxford and has authored a number of books, most recently, This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks into Our Darkness. She mulls life and books in her newsletter, A Note from Sarah, presents seminars on great novels and theology, and hosts read-aloud fellowships on Patreon and Instagram. She can usually be found with either a book or a cup of tea in hand in the Oxford vicarage she shares with her Anglican priest husband, Thomas, and their three children. Today, she's here with me to talk literature and beauty. Sarah, I'm so pleased you're here on Old Books with Grace. Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. I love this. Well, as you may know, I asked two get-to-know-you questions um, for every guest who comes on the podcast. The first one is, what is your favorite book that is more than 50 years old? And you don't have to confine yourself to one if that's too difficult. That is a very good question. I was, I, I've been, I've been actually learning quite a lot from you. So someday, eventually, I'll say a medieval book. But <laughs> I, I know I'm more Victorian literature so far. So I love. I'll pick two. Um, I could pick many more, but I will confine myself to two. I think Middlemarch is a fascinating novel by George Eliot. Um, I think there is so much to mine from that novel. I return to it again and again. I think her understanding of human nature, her kind of her big questions, the way she answers them. I just love George Eliot as a thinker. And I think Middlemarch is kind of one of those perennial novels you can just come back to again and again. And then I also, and I, I feel like I often read this in autumn. It's an autumnal book for me is, um, Lilith by George MacDonald, oh, yes. which is a strange and fascinating and spiritually potent work, kind of this uh-huh. fantasy and, um, yeah, spiritual fantasy in a way, but it's beautiful. So those are two of my off the top favorite older than 50 years old books. Very. Oh, I, okay. So this makes me think of two things. One is that I need to reread Lilith. I think I read it in high school and was not ready for it. If that makes sense. That um, makes total sense. <laughs> I think uh, I need to return to it and give it, it's uh, give it a more mature reading as an It's adult. an incredibly strange book. And I, I have a theory that it's like better when you're older because you need to have suffered a bit before you kind of get it. <laughs> yes. And I think I, um, I think I also, when I, when I read it then was, was less familiar with sort of like the interesting things you can do with uh, not um, with metaphor and with allegory. Uh, and yeah. so yeah. I think returning to that with a, with a deeper awareness would be good. And then the other thing is that I also need to return to Middlemarch because, um, first of all, you have a great article recently in Plow about Middlemarch, which I very much enjoyed, but also okay. because, uh, I didn't like, uh, Dorothea, um, when I, she's very as, annoying. She's very annoying. And, um, oh. I, I think that it, um, I, I really enjoyed like mill on the floss and Silas Marner and a lot of other of, of Elliot's books. But again, I need to give Middlemarch a little more time to breathe and a little more room and give Dorothea a little more grace. <laughs> so, well, I actually think, interestingly, I think Dorothy, I think Elliot is a little bit, I think there's a bit of Elliot and Dorothea and I think she's fully aware of how difficult the person Dorothea is to live with. And I don't think, I used to think when I read it, like, Oh, you know, her marriage, the disaster of her marriage to Mr. Cossabon was all his fault. And actually I read it this time. I was like, Elliot is not letting her get away with the thing. Mm. She is like making her take her share of this disaster. It's really interesting. Kind of Mm -hmm. this like total idealist, which I can very much identify with. Um, and actually, you can be quite insufferable as an idealist. And, you know, sainthood isn't <laughs> to be had because you want to be a saint. <laughs> there are actually things required of you. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So who is the second get to know you question? Who is the literary character uh, that you most identify with? 
again, there are many. I'm going to go with, and I was trying to think of one because the one that comes immediately to mind is a child. And so I was thinking, I need to think about one who's grown up as well. But actually, I think the soul of me would still say, even even grown up, that was still the same thing. So there's um, one of my favorite novelists is Elizabeth Gooch. And she wrote um, a novel called um, A City of Bells, uh, which is about Wells Cathedral and the history of that. And there's a girl in there named Henrietta. And she. there are so many descriptions in that novel that I just would read and think, yes, I understand that. This Her love for the city and her sense of kind of this wild imagination that also is kind of almost this mystical awareness of the history and people and meaning of the world around her. And then there's these aspects where it talks about her secret knowledge that she needs to paint and she needs to make this art. And then there's this wildness of being in the country and she needs to be in her places and she needs to not be overwhelmed by the noise of the city long-term. There's just all these little descriptions. She's kind of this dreamer artist soul. I think I just, I do identify with her and also I just love her little spirit. So I think, I guess that's what I go with. Henrietta. That's great. I, I have not read City of Bells. I've read quite a bit of other Elizabeth Gooch novels and I need to keep going with her. She's so wonderful. Oh, and I have this sort of fantasy in the back of my mind of uh, writing sometimes something about Elizabeth Gooch just because she is someone mm. I didn't discover till recently. And her speaking of beauty, which we're talking about today, yes. she is such an artist of of beauty and all of her novels yes. are about beauty to some extent. And she sees the world in a profoundly sacramental way. She yes. understands it like shot through with God's presence. Everything. And it's, you read it and you're kind of brought out of yourself or, or further into yourself. I don't, depending on which yeah. way you're <laughs> thinking you about it, but into uh, divine reality, which is just yeah. amazing. Um, well, you've written this really lovely and thoughtful book. And it came out a couple years ago now, but this beautiful truth, how God's goodness breaks into our darkness and um, central to your story about finding God in the beauty and goodness that is in art and literature and landscape is kind of your own background and your own struggle. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more of about this book and about your story for those of us who haven't read it yet. Um, it's one of those books that it took 20 years for me to write. And sometimes it feels a bit like it was written from the, you know, deep places of my soul. It was brooding there for a long time. Um, it's so in many ways, it's the story, in many ways, it's the story of my clinging to faith at the very point when I think I could have lost it. So to make a long and, you know, intricate story short, um, the book is about how, so I was diagnosed with uh, mental illness, so OCD, uh, when I was 17 years old. And it was something, I had been raised in a, a Christian home. I believed in God. I I had a, a general feeling of him as being benevolent. And suddenly I was, um, I lived in a world that had been kind of almost literally for me shattered by, um, so my kind of OCD is it's this constant influx of um, disturbing and violent images. And it, it shifts throughout my life, but especially at, at 17, it was just this mm -hmm. kind of, I don't really know how to describe it. It's, it's kind of living in the constant company of an in, inner, inner um, videotape of, let's use old, old words, an inner movie of, <laughs> of um, just horror. And it, it just, I would, I, the fear of it, of, the, of people I loved being hurt, of dreadful things happening, of the news headlines, it just felt like the whole world was closing in. And in the midst of this, I mean, not only was there this sense of how can God exist and be good if if this is my new reality, was also the how can God be kind if he will allow this mm -hmm. to happen to me? How can he be loving in any meaningful way? How can I understand him as personal, as powerful, as as a savior of me? And really, I think that this book was born in the fact that in the midst of that most dark place, where I think was the first kind of comeuppance against suffering and kind of the total decimation of my faith world, there were these moments of, of beauty that I kept encountering. And in those moments of a story, Lord of the Rings was a hugely mm. um, influential, I would say kind of almost imaginative encounter for me. Moments in nature. We lived in Colorado and I would stand on the deck and think, I don't think I can continue to go. I don't know how God can exist or love me. And I would see 
a star. And in this moment of you know, mountain starlight was this encounter with something that was before my darkness and endured beyond it. It's very much the, I often felt like there's that line in Tolkien where it says Sam was standing in Mordor and he looked up and saw a star shining and he understood that there was a light and high beauty beyond, forever beyond the touch of darkness. And so I think in a sense, this book is my, it's kind of my witness to this, to my encounter with that light and high beauty in such a way that I do believe it was the presence of Christ invading my darkness, um, not arguing me into a place of belief, um, and that's part of the story, too, is I feel like in the midst of that, when I was asking these questions about God and who is he and how can he love me, a lot of the answers I received were kind of just suck it up and be okay by faith, or it's just God's will. These very casual things, can you go, wait, 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 wait. How can God want this for me? How can he will this? Who? Wh- what does it mean to love him? Is he? It, who, what does it mean for him to be good? But in beauty, I understood and encountered his goodness in a visceral and really life transformative way um, that that brought me a huge amount of healing and really is the foundation, I think, for my faith in many ways as I've gone forward is an understanding mm-hmm. of him as the beautiful one mm-hmm. who comes to heal and redeem all things. So mm-hmm. in a nutshell, I guess, that's it. Thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. You, in, in this, in your narrative, you describe discovering this idea of theodicy um, and which is a, I think a fraught idea and very fraught mm. sometimes in practicality. And, um, yeah. but you, you kind of work through your own experience with theodicy. So I want to ask you, how would you define theodicy and what do you mean in your book? You have this moment where you're kind of like, oh, beauty is God's theodicy. Um, and, and if you could describe that a little bit more, I'd love to hear it. Sure. Um, so theodicy is, um, it's actually made up of two Greek words. So one one means God and one means um, uh, to justify. So basically theodicy is, it's it's a kind of school within theological study of how do you, it's, it's trying to bring three questions into um, a place of tension. So if God is good and if God is powerful and the world is evil, how can you, how can all of these things be true at once? And so, I mean, there's a whole history of, you know, the study of theodicy. Um, but I think it's really interesting. I think something I I began to think about, and I had the chance to study it in depth when I came um, to study at Wycliffe um, here in Oxford when I first moved here and happened to have a professor whose, whose area of research it was. So it, I, I remember the first um, lecture I went to and I was like, this is my subject. This is, this is what I want to know. And I think... Um, we often approach the Odyssey um, with argument, and you know, there's there's definitely the academic side and the pastoral side. Mm-hmm. Um, but on both of them, I would actually say it's very difficult to argue. The Odyssey is something very difficult to do well because yes. the world is really evil and really awful things do happen, and we yet believe that God is really good and really loving. And I think it is often very hard to reconcile those very well in an argument. I would say the ones who do it best are those who do it within the form of narrative. So I think Bob Baltazar, I think some of these Catholic, he's a Catholic theologian I really loved. Some of um, Lewis actually did some good work in this. Um, David Bentley Hart, his his um, book, The Doors of the Sea, they kind of set the arguments of theodicy within the larger narrative of scripture. Yes, And I think that is one way of doing it. But when it comes to beauty, Something that was really transformative for me was reading in depth the book of Job. And I think in Job, it's really fascinating because you several things struck me. I think, first of all, Job is allowed to grieve. There is a, his grief is honored. So God doesn't strike him down for railing against the darkness of the world for railing against his loss. And actually God allows himself to be summoned in the midst of Job's lament. Job says, I want to speak with God, and God arrives. And his friends are dumbfounded because they think that Job must have done something awful to deserve this. And Job says, no. His main, his maintaining of his innocence is actually an honor to God to say, I, God has to be, God, this is not something I did wrong. If God is honorable, then he will come. And he comes. Hmm. But then instead of explaining to Job what has happened in the terms of an argument, or the terms of kind of here's one A, B, C, D, God takes Job into a tour of the vastness of creation. And I I, some, I've, I read some scholars that kind of 
seems to see God's arrival and showing Job creation as kind of a put down, like just be quiet, you're you're small. I don't think it's <laughs> I don't see it that way. I <laughs> I think actually you see God say, I am going to show you the intricacies of everything I have made. I'm gonna let you witness the splendor of creation. I will show you the morning stars singing in their joy. Sorry, it's going to make me cry. I get very emotional about this. Um, God shows Job the depths of his beauty and says, will you trust me? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a vulnerability to the Almighty. And it's really interesting because the first time Job kind of dismisses him, he's like, okay, yes, I'll be silent. And then God says, let me show you more. Mm-hmm. And he shows him more. And there's a second um, account of, of Job's, of what Job sees. And at the end of it, Job says, I have been answered. And I think that was the moment I thought, I also have been answered. I don't understand my mental illness. I don't understand the brokenness of my mind. But in the beauty I've encountered, I've encountered something so good and so healing and so eternal that I can say with Job, I have been answered. And that was the moment I think the idea of beauty is God's theodicy. I think that we understand him and see him and what has been made. And as I started to look through scripture, you just see it again and again, God speaking through what's been made, his encounter and the way that he comes He's always moving into creation. I love there's a scholar um, oh, um, who wrote the incarnation, Alan Torrance, um, who talks about God's incarnational movement, that the scripture, he's always moving closer mm. and more and more in flesh until we have Christ, you know, Jesus, who is the, who is God come into the fallen and dark world to bear our suffering in such a way that we are healed and transformed. Um, but I think that that is the beauty. It's an aspect of Christ that we encounter irradiated throughout creation and art and music mm. in in the presence of other people. Um, and I think in that sense, we, I don't think you can argue people into a belief in God's goodness, but I think you can taste and encounter it yes. in the goodness and beauty of the, of the world. That really resonates with me. Um, it, it was really interesting reading that portion and then just hearing you talk about it just now, because I think my encounter with the Odyssey for the first time was also in graduate school with mm-hmm. the word and the idea, but yeah. I was in a literature program. And so I came to it through, uh, um, Milton's paradise lost and, yep. um, which is his famous line to justify the ways of God to man. Um, <laughs> yes. and, uh, <laughs> and so yes. it's, it, though it's a narrative, it's a very argument driven and Mil- Milton was a very argumentative man. Um, but, uh, it is really as a result, you have this poem that has these moments of beauty, but these moments that, um, I find very difficult. And so it mm. is, and- uh, a really, fascinating to hear your wrestling with it as a witness, a revelation, and not a an argument or a sort of logic driven, like, well, if I just explain everything clearly enough yeah. in this nice poem for you, um, it, it will all make sense. So, well, I was, I think something about Job I loved too, was that the people in this, in the story of Job, which, you know, if you think of Job as kind of God's God's book on the Odyssey and scripture, you don't fight him. Um, the people in the story who were trying to tie it up in a neat package, who actually were trying to justify the ways of God to men. Yes, yes. They were the Job's friends and they were not, God did not consider them righteous. Yes. He considered them to have not understood him and his greatness. And I think that there's a tension we have to dwell in where there, there is a mystery and yet there is such potent evidence of goodness that we're called, we're kind of summoned to and, and I think honored by the choice to step into this strange wilderness area where there is the possibility of friendship with God in a mm. sense of, yeah, I think there's a real honor we can give God as well. Mm. Um, so to keep following this beauty trail, something I'm really struck by and have been thinking about for a long time, but not necessarily in these terms. Um, so this is really helpful, but that beauty is way, way more important than we usually culturally realize, or we we kind of put it in a second place or irrelevant category, like, well, the real important thing is truth, or the real important thing is goodness or kindness or whatever um, iteration of that we're using at the moment. Um, and so we tend to disvalue it or ignore it or even go for um what's practical, what's, what, where can we get the most use, the most utility? Um, 
and you you quote the theologian um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who you already have mentioned, uh, we no longer dare to believe in beauty and we make of it a mere appearance in order the more easily to dispose of it. Why do you think that we have, as Christians even, I'm not just talking about the culture at large, but as Christians, mm-hmm. often give beauty the short shrift and prioritize truth or goodness over it? I mean, I think there's a long history, and I'm probably not scholar enough to give it well, but um, I think there's lots of different strands. I think I think it's really good to understand, to study the way we learn to see the world and to understand that the way we see the world in a modern way is something we have received. So it's not just like we we wake up and we see the world in the correct way. Actually, you know, our ancestors would have experienced the world in much different ways. And I think understanding the history of experience is really good. I think that in the, I think we often work from a very mechanistic and reductivist yes. view of creation. And I think that that has really, um, I think it's a profoundly secular view and I think it has invaded Christian thought and in shocking ways. Um, I think that we have moved away from a sacramental understanding of the world um, one of the one of the most interesting books I've read in the past few years has been um, Heavenly Participation, and it talks about sacramental ontology by Hans Borsma. He's a, a um, contemporary scholar, and he talks about how we we really need to recapture an understanding, a more ancient understanding. I'd be curious if you'd say if it's a medieval understanding. Um, I don't know enough. C.S. Yeah. Lewis would. <laughs> well, as you say, discarded image. That's like that's like my little intro. Is, to, I, I knew you were. I. I, I was like, she's thinking of discarded image right now. <laughs> Sorry. A hundred percent. hundred percent. But understanding the world, um, I, I, I am with Lewis in saying no matter how much science, I mean, there's a, there's a scientific view. It's great that we understand science, but understanding the scientific revolution, the nature of the enlightenment, it's, it's all shorthand, but it's, there's a way in which we have chosen one mode of knowledge yeah. Um, the the measured, the observable, the empirical as the only way of understanding. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a very limited way of understanding. And it's not how humans have understood themselves for centuries. And um, I, I love Malcolm Bo- um, Geitz, his book, Faith, Hope and Poetry, he gives mm-hmm. this really great kind of history of how just talking about what this this point in which you actually see scholars during the Enlightenment saying we must not use fanciful language anymore, we must not use myth or fairy tale, kind of this idea of denigrating anything that could be imaginative, including faith, because I mean faith is faith is the realm of narrative, faith is the realm of poetry and myth, and not and myth in an untrue sense, myth in the sense of a story that gives shape to our lives, and so I think understanding the history of that is really important, and even reading some books like. Um, it's not directly about this, but I loved reading Wendell Berry's um, Life is a Miracle. Mm-hmm. And he is just basically grumpily. He's really grumpy about some of the modern books. And he's just like, you guys need to understand life is a miracle. Art, beauty, the whole world is shot through with the wonder of God. But we need to kind of recapture in that sense a more ancient understanding of, of the world as being full of meaning. It's Alexander Schmemann's work in, um, oh, it's just, uh, for the life of the world, where he says all um, that is, oh, hold on. If I have the quote right here, if I have the quote, I can give it to you. But he's basically writing, saying that he thinks one of the main things wrong with, with both the secular world and the Christian world is um, that we don't have a sufficient understanding of the goodness of creation. Um, here it is. There are, here it is. Um, hold on, I'm going to find it for us. Um, all that exists is God's gift to man, and it all exists to make God known to man, mm. to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food. God blesses everything he creates, and in biblical language, this means that he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. And in that sense, I think we have an insufficiently incarnational understanding of ourselves, because that includes beauty and art and literature and the goodness of food and the beauty of the seasons. And all of this is speaking and meaning mm-hmm. um, in a way that's very different from studying a list of doctrinal tenets. And, you know, you know, it's a, and, and also I think we need to understand what beauty communicates. Yes. Beauty communicates. So it's one thing to say that God is good. It is another thing for my neighbor to show up at my door with when I'm sick and, or grieved with, 
a cake and a hug and something that has been made by hand. Those things communicate. There's a visceral incarnational communication of goodness, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the way that God God communicates in Christ. Um, these things communicate goodness. They embody and enflesh truth. Yes. Um, and I think you cannot have, you, you can't divorce them as well, I would say. Mm. I think that's that's right. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion too, and maybe this is going to sound really negative, but I do think it's true. I I wonder if we downgrade beauty too, because beauty has so often culturally been associated with women and with mm. what women are interested in. And so, you know, truth and goodness, those are Yes. Those are more those are worthwhile. You know, those mm-hmm. are those are the real bo- you know, you only like beauty in order to get to truth or whatever. But really, yeah. it's that beauty and truth are inseparable from one another. That the truth is always going to be beautiful in the end, right? Um Yes, and attend each other. Yes. Yes. And and so I'm I feel like often we forget Hmm. about beauty because there's this suspicion of it as yeah. something feminine or feminized or feminizing, right? Um, that is really interesting. And yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think often people say dismiss beauty. It's with something like saying, oh, you just like, like, you know, house beautiful or something. Yes. It's this, it's, it's this making beauty, nothing or peripheral yes. or, you know, it's something you do afterwards. It's only if you're kind of like, that's what you're into. Yes. Whereas beauty is mighty, beauty is fierce. No, it's beauty it's Mary Magdalene breaking yeah. the jar on on and anointing. That Jesus. was an act of pure, generous love expressed in beauty. That is yes. what beauty is. But beauty is also, and this is where I remember my book came out. Someone was in my launch team, and she said, "I don't know how to answer this question." Somebody has said that they to me that they don't want to read the book because they think this whole concept is just American. And I was like, "What do you mean by American?" Hmm. And I realized they, they said, "Well, they work in third world countries where there's real suffering, and like this must only be for people who are rich." And I was like, "No, no, no. no. Oh, if you think beauty is about what you can buy or what you can, or having a perfect life or perfect house, yeah. that's that's a wholly secular and." Re- re- totally reduced ideal of beauty. Beauty is God's form made tangible in the world. Beauty is the feeding of the hungry. Beauty is the caring for the orphan. Beauty is a feast set out for those who are lonely. Beauty is art and music and literature, but it's also, but those are specific ways that we encounter God in the realm of imagination and the realm of image and the realm of symbol. Beauty is also the writing and the healing of the world. And I think to make it anything less than that is to really to misunderstand the way that God is invading and healing creation. Hmm. Yes. Um, So there are basically sort of two things that I'm trying to think through. One is um, how can we resist making beauty sort of diluting its inexpressibility, it's givenness, it's gift uh, into like an argument or a proof text or even a weapon. That's one thing that I am interested in. But then on the other hand, which I think is actually our greater cultural danger is ignoring it. And so maybe mm-hmm. we can talk about the, the the argument or proof text or weapon first, and then the ignoring it second. <laughs> but what do you think? Um, how to avoid it? I mean, I think Hmm. Tell me uh, tell me a little bit more what you mean by like using it a weapon or a proof text. Like, like what would the context be for that? I feel like, and I, I think maybe you've already uh, implicitly answered this because by expanding the definition of beauty, I think sometimes beauty can be used to as, as a sort of gatekeeping, right? Um, where uh, I, I think of this, it's actually your friend's question about it being too American or too Western or whatever, where specific yeah. types of beauty are uh, upheld over other types of beauty. Um, yes. And and so what's hard is sometimes when we start talking about beauty a lot, we end up trying to define it or trying to contain it in a yes. particular way, or it, it's always, and I mean, it's always coming in a vehicle. It's not, um, 
well, I guess Plato Plato would probably disagree with me, I guess, but like, (laughs) um, but I guess I'm more of a person who's seeing it in the particularities. Right. And I think you would probably agree with me in, in the beauty coming in the form of a neighbor with a dish on your doorstep. Right. Um, well, and that's why the particularities is a good word. And I think that that's one of the things I've loved about studying theology and learning more about the incarnation is the incarnation is particular. It is time and place. It is, there are, it's, um, dry Manley Hopkins, Christ plays in 10,000 places, yes, lovely in I eyes love and lovely in limbs, not his. And so I think one of the ways we cultivate that, I think with the, there has to be an openness before the other. There has to be an openness to seeing God at work in his beauty. My mom, who's a missionary, she said at, one, at some point in her young life, she kind of was like, oh my gosh, God is not American. Mm-hmm. Um, the understanding of God's nature shifts throughout the world doesn't mean that, you know, I think there can be many orthodox ways of seeing God. And so often I think that we kind of have this, this is the only way to understand everything in my culture, in my context. And mm. in that sense, I think being a student of the art and the literature and the music of cultures throughout history and the world is actually a really easy way to come to kind of encounter the riches mm. of of these many different forms and modes of beauty, all of which I think are expressing in various ways the goodness and beauty of God. Obviously not all beauty reflects God. There is beauty can be fallen as everything in the world can be fallen. Mm. But um, I think that becoming, I, I think just an interaction with the arts to begin with, interacting with music, seeing art throughout the ages, those things are, they open up our heart to witnessing God at play, Christ at play in, in all the different places and ways. So I guess that's one way I'd say it. Mm. Yes, that's helpful. That reminds me of um, of your you quote the, the theologian Jeremy Begbie, um, who says the arts give expression to a metaphorical way of perceiving the world, which reminds us that there's always more to the world than we can name, control, and grasp. And I think that really expresses that yeah. idea. So Very well. much so. Yeah, I agree. How have you learned? So you mentioned literature and maybe we can um, talk about that a little bit more, but what are some real practical ways? uh, So for a lot of us, we are in our, in just in our daily lives for everyone. I don't know why I say a lot of us, everyone, we're all in our little daily lives (laughs) and it's really easy to uh, stop paying attention to beauty because it's just hard to live, right? It's just hard, especially um, you have little kids. I have little kids. We're both in the trenches right now where sometimes you're able to pick out and notice, you know, the beautiful curve of your infant's cheek or the, um, you know, the phone call from a friend that lifts you out of yourself. But at other times you're just surviving, right? You're just in the survival mode. And so how do you think we can cultivate when you're, when you're just getting through the day that witnessing to beauty and recognizing it and acknowledging it? I think, which is um, odd because it sounds initially like an abstraction, but it's not. Um, I think something I'm increasingly aware of is that engaging with words can be a way of framing my view of the world. Mm. And so um, I have, as I have moved much more deeply into the Anglican tradition of liturgy and prayer, Mm. I find that really in a fascinating way, the words of the prayers narrate the way I perceive myself and within my world. And so, um, you know, if you can begin the day, which I struggle right now to have three minutes of quiet time in the morning, like I have a whole history of being an introvert with long devotions and it's been a while since I've had a quiet time that was more than five minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but some of the prayers that I, I have a book, I have a couple of book of prayers that I keep either in my bedroom or in my study. And if I even have five minutes or three minutes, which is more like it usually, I will try to just say one of those prayers. And I find that there's a, there's a way of narrating myself into um, like there. One of the ones I say is from my Celtic book of prayer. Um, 
And one of the, the, the opening prayer is, one thing I've asked of the Lord, this I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to behold the goodness of the Lord and to seek mm. him in his temple. And, and beginning my day with those words helps me to ask, what does it mean to dwell in the Lord's house all the days of my life? What does it mean to me today? And part of it means to be a witness, to to behold the beauty of the Lord. So there's, this, there's a sense in which... Um, I feel like that helps me to become a beholder. So I leave my room, however mad and crazy the day, thinking I am one who is meant to behold. And there's a, it's interesting when I was really struggling with the idea of doing of having any prayer quiet time when my children were quite young, a spiritual mentor of mine was like, he said, you need to do very small things. Mm. He said, pick one color throughout the day. And he said, whenever you see that color, thank God. Whenever mm. you see that, notice what it is and thank God for its goodness. And so I think that there are these very small ways. I think poetry is a really good way of narrating ourselves afresh. And I think language in general, I'm a great proponent of saying, I'm very much with Owen Barfield, that poetry can cause a felt change of consciousness, as he Mm. would say, Um, and that we need to engage with words so that they help us to become those who see and interact with creation in a different way. But I think for me, like with my children, I really involve them in it with me. Um, and children do, if you can get past the utter exhaustion occasionally, which I really do. However, their way of seeing the world is that of wanderers. Everything is new and potent to them. And so we have, I, I really tried to make a lot of the rhythms of our lives um, to take joy in the small and the, um, the, the hands-on. We have a nature cabinet and we, every time we go for a walk, we pick up small things from the ground and then they put them kind of like a, a museum display in their cabinet. Oh, I love that. Seems- That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> also gives me a place like to collect all the leaves. Yes. So so I'm like, we have so many <laughs> random rocks in our house. And I'm like, focal oh, point. But then you can make a museum of it. Yes. <laughs> it's really cool. But then as a mother, I'm sometimes like, God's creation is so beautiful. Hmm. Look how many berries there are. And I begin to see along with my children, instead of, in spite of them, Hmm. um, instead of seeing them as the detractors from my capacity to see beauty and experience it, if I see them as the companions and even sometimes the guides to beauty, I find that a really helpful way of of allowing myself to be led um, into the presence of beauty. But I think there is also this element of a constant choice to renew our wonder, because I think either every small beauty, either the daffodil growing in a pot on my windowsill, either the slant of light on the apples, either, you know, the really delicious muffin I made, either these things mean something or they don't. Mm. And I very deeply believe that every good and beautiful thing is gesturing to the goodness of its creator. And I think when you come to that point of saying, I will see every bit of goodness as meaningful. You begin to interact and to enter in this whole different way of experiencing the world. Even when you're exhausted, even when it's not as beautiful or shiny, there is this sense in which I I cannot see something without realizing, I really believe with all my heart, this gestures to to the goodness that began me and will heal the world. Mm. And it doesn't mean it's always emotionally available, but it's a set of the mind, a set of the heart. Mm. Yes. So you talk a lot about words and how they have helped you in this process as well. So, and and I really relate to that in my life. The books of the past have led me to beauty over and over and have done so partially because they shock you out of what is ordinary, right? You're reading medieval literature and you're like, this is so weird. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Um, but uh, where have you, you mentioned, you've mentioned Elliot and Googe and a lot of other good writers, but would you maybe share some stories about how the literature of the past has formed you to recognize mm-hmm. and bear witness to beauty or who are some of the historical writers or figures who can midwife um, our imaginations mm-hmm. into beauty? Oh, that's a good term. I like that. Um, just to keep, before I forget, with the going with the whole liturgy idea, one of the great things I loved and discovered is um, the Carmina Gadelica, which is this collection of of ancient prayers and daily daily prayers, and they would even call them runes, mm-hmm. um, that Alexander Carmichael was this researcher in the, I think, Victorian era. And he went throughout Scotland and Ireland and 
um, kind of the rural communities collecting prayers. And many of these prayers had been passed generation to generation, but they were profoundly incarnational prayers. They were, they were prayers for smoring the fire and there were prayers for the rising of the sun. And there's this story he tells where this mother says to her children, if the birds are singing their praises to God, why wouldn't you be singing your praise to God? And they have these prayers that there was a prayer for every aspect of life. And it arose from this understanding of, and I got to do this paper when I was studying. I loved it of, you know, how, how did the Celtic church see the world? Um, And they saw time as being woven into God's story and the Mm -hmm. seasons as showing forth aspects of his character and imagination. And so their prayers reflect this profoundly, I would call beautiful way of encountering the world. Everything has a prayer and everything is sacred. So I think I really, um, it's, it's all online. um, So you can find it easily, but I, I finally got myself a book of it, but I have, that has been just a really a door into that collection of kind of ancient prayers um, I, I mean, and I it's funny, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, but um, I'm actually works. using one of them for my Substack newsletter this, that I'm writing right now. Oh, fun. So perfect go, timing. Perfect. Yeah. It's a really <laughs> beautiful one about, uh, about, uh, the morning and the haze rising off the hills, oh, like, yes. like the, like how the Lord takes the haze off of our hearts. Um, beautiful. so it's a really beautiful po- um, poem. Poem. I say really a poem. Beautiful. It's a prayer prayer poem but um poem. Yep. yeah I love that you mentioned that so anyways I keep think going. a lot of <laughs> a lot of poetry for me so I mean I think some of the the romantic poets I mean Wordsworth is hard to read without being immersed in a way of seeing the world that is just a revelation of God's beauty he mm. is he is in awe of the world and he wants you to be too and he wants to understand why he's in awe and he wants to describe it and I really I loved reading the prelude when I was a teenager. Mm. I think that was just like this. On that note, not quite Wordsworth, but but very important in her own right. Lucy Mel Montgomery, I mean, she counts. She's over 50 years old. So Yes. Yes. No, and, and she, I would say, is one of my primary teachers into beauty. Yes. I think exactly. reading her as a, you know, 10-year-old. Um, yep. Anne of Green She teaches Gables. us how to see the world. Yes. And in a... Anne is like, <laughs> Anne is cringy sometimes, you know, like Anne is unembarrassed yeah. and unabashed about being mm. just wildly in touch with beauty. And yes. people think that she is out there. And, but it's, and she, as a, as reading that as a young girl was so freeing, yeah. you know, just I to, Oh, very much so. Yeah. Oh, same. It gave like total expression to all of my heart. Yes. And then I would go and start trying to describe the world like she did. But that's <laughs> like, it's a way of learning to see, right? Um, I, I started describing Christmas as purple feeling after, after reading that, um, which, amazing. you know, think about what you will. <laughs> but I still think of it. I'm like, oh, it's the purple season. Like, it's the purple season. That's gorgeous. I really love that. I started just naming everything around me. Oh, that's, that's the king tree. That's the golden pond. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Yes. This is the so, second I, I, episode in a row in which I wax about um, Anne of Green Gables. So I'm really glad oh, it's happening again. <laughs> absolutely. I once had a conversation with several other women my age and we were we were all writers and we just started gushing about Anne of Green Gables in this very intellectual kind of conference and setting. Um, and we were all like, she, Anne, like, shaped a whole generation of women to see the world in a certain way. And it was a really good way to be shaped. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anne is sacramental. Totally. She's sacramental. And she's also empowered and educated and yes. interested in big words and learning and anything is she's a dreamer and she's loyal. There's so many good things. I could rack eloquence. I will stop. But Anne Green Gables for sure. Yes. And Emily of New Moon with her because she yes. is the writer. I love Emily as well. Um Gerard Manley Hopkins. I mean, oh. so many poets. Yes. I, and I do think poets are in the business of seeing the world in this way. Like part of what they're trying to speak forth, I think, poets are, is this, these glimpses of this view. And you even have like, and that she's not quite as old, but Sylvia Plath has this, you know, a woman who is, is not known for her profoundly sacramental or Christian view of the world, mm. but she has this poem talking about these moments of incandescence called Black Rook and Rainy Weather. And she talks about being kind of struck 
alive by this moment when the light fell a certain way and she's kind of like startled alive and all of a sudden her life doesn't seem meaningless and it makes her think that maybe she could be saved from total despair Mm -hmm. it's this fascinating and I think that's what poets through the ages are trying to get at in their poetry and so Mm -hmm. I think Hopkins the romantic poets I think George Herbert has some beautiful gosh poetry um, medieval lyric poetry. I know that it's it's further afield, but some of it you just read, and and it's so s- simple in its in its form sometimes that you're just kind of blown away by it. Um, and here's I want I want to put in a plug for folks who are listening. Who I, I talk to a lot of people who once they learn what I do, once they learn about my background, they say, "Oh, I'm really." They're intimidated by poetry, you know. And this is what I was kind of thinking about in relation to the beauty gatekeeping stuff or beauty argument yes. weapon stuff. I and totally and so I want to encourage you if you haven't if you've been scared to try poetry, it's not just for those who have been educated into understanding it. You can yeah. you can give it a try and just let it work its way on you wherever you're at at your own place and own yeah reading and own level um completely agree and I think that your words testify to that well and that's why I love following you because I don't have much of an education in medieval world but I love was it Henry Vaughn was that who you did Mm -hmm. recently Mm -hmm. that's such I mean just being exposed to that kind of poetry and also I think I used to run an advent poetry group at my college here in Wycliffe and in Oxford and um what was really interesting is people would be kind of timid about joining. Like, I don't know quite what I'm supposed to say or what the correct reaction yes. is. I was like, no, no, there is no correct reaction. Your reaction is the correct one. You're supposed to encounter the worlds and be the words and be kindled by them. That is, that is the extent of knowledge you need to have coming to poetry is just read the words and see what they strike alive in you. And then there, we always have the most fascinating discussions from total non-students of poetry. I'm quite an amateur myself, but yes. So I think poetry, um, yeah, I think those are the main, the first and big ones that came to mind. I think in so many ways, novels are centering, are, are always asking these questions of beauty. I, I think old novels are always interested in a way that we don't even understand in the modern world with this question of the beautiful and how it is expressed. And I mean, I think Elliot is always circling that in her novels. Oh my gosh, always. Um, always. So, I mean, I could easily say lots of novels too, but I feel like that would take afternoon. So I'll try to confine myself. <laughs> no, I I agree. I think that uh, it, I know you mentioned your love of Victorian novels, and I think Victorian novels are a really good place to find those questions because very they are much wrestling so. much like us today, but in a very in a different context. They're wrestling with the changing of their world and going, "What is beautiful? How can we seek beauty yes. when I live in a factory town, or when I, you know, when the the trees are being cut down, or when yes. we're trying to figure out what." an ethical life looks like with, with yeah. this changing economy, that kind of stuff is there. Um, and, and maybe the fact that we've discounted beauty means all the trees are being cut down and maybe we need to start yes. thinking about beauty again. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, no, those are good. And then um, we are running out of time, but I really want to ask you this question because, or it's not even a question. It's more of just a rumination, but um, you bring up the enunciation the moment mm-hmm. when Gabriel comes to Mary and Mary says yes to bearing Jesus. That's how you end your book. And um, I was so excited to see that because increasingly the Annunciation has become a really central moment for me in terms of mm-hmm. my faith, um, understanding what it looks like to receive and to mm-hmm. consent. Um, and yeah. so I wanted to ask you what, has the Annunciation meant to you in terms of beauty? Mm. That's a really good question. I think, I think in a way, I love um, Denise Levertop's poem. I think that that's what I put in the book. Um, mm. There's a sense in which when we are encountered by beauty, when we are, and I would say when beauty when beauty confronts us, and I very much, I think I increasingly see beauty, even in the most ordinary of moments, um, I increasingly believe in kind of the personal, the personal presence of God constantly reaching out mm-hmm. to us. But there is this moment of invitation, mm-hmm. and there's this constant, really incredible 
agency we are allowed that allows us to become those who not only receive it or are healed by it, but those who accept it and participate in it. Um, and I think that one of the things I love about the Annunciation is that Mary's yes is not passive. It's a it's a mighty yes, and it required huge courage, but it also made her one of the storytellers in uh, God as a storyteller. It made her one of the the agents, one of the acting with God. I think we are given such a mighty capacity to be those who create beauty as he did. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in Mary's yes was, it wasn't just a passive yes, because it was the offering of the whole of herself and body mm. to, in, in a really visceral way. Yeah, to, very, very uh, real I mean, way. <laughs> the sword will pierce your heart and your belly is, yeah. full, you know, like the all. And, and I think that. Very much. And I th- I actually think also that beauty, along with that, so I think that the sword in the heart is really important because to be open to God's coming and beauty means also to be open to seeing the brokenness and sorrow of the world and to understand why beauty has to come, why beauty has to arrive, why, why what, what actually needs healing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a courage, but there is an incredible and beautiful agency we are allowed in being like Mary who says, be it done to me according to your word. May my life and my person and my story be the place that beauty arrives again in the broken world. Mm. So. Thank you. Um, last question. Where, if, if folks are interested in learning more about you, finding out more what you're up to, where would you direct them online to go find you? Um, probably my easiest central place is just my website, which is sarahclarkson.com. Um Sarah with an H I'm, and I'm most, most active, if you can call it active on um, social media, on Instagram at Sarah wonders. So W A N D E R S. But those, those are the easiest places to find me these days. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. I enjoyed our conversation so much. Oh, me too. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to old books with grace. Something else I'm working on lately that I'm very excited to share with you is a book club on my Substack, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. Um, it is a paid tier on my Substack where you can um, pay per month and join an ongoing book club discussing medieval literature and early modern literature in more depth. And um, we are starting to read Julian of Norwich. So if you've never read Julian of Norwich and you'd love to read with community, with somebody who has read a lot of Julian of Norwich and has written a lot about her, I would be so happy to welcome you. You can find that more information on gracehammond.substack.com. You can also find me online if you have any questions or comments about this episode or other episodes. On Twitter, you can find me at Grace Hammond PhD on Instagram at old books with grace. And as always, I hugely appreciate it. Um, if you can rate or review on the platform that you listen to this episode, it helps other folks find this podcast and it helps me too. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.